Sergeant First Class Ethan Long is a highly experienced and dedicated soldier who served in the United States Army since January 2009. He began his military journey as a 19-kilo armored crewman, demonstrating his early commitment to serving on the front lines and operating heavy armored vehicles. In 2012, Sergeant First Long decided to reclassify his military occupational spe specialty to become a 14 Echo, or a Patriot Fire Control Enhanced Operator and Maintainer. As a 14 Echo, he took on various crucial positions, including serving as a Tactical Control Assistant, Battery Trainer, and Senior Engagement Controller. These roles required him to exhibit exceptional te technical expertise, strategic thinking, and the ability to effectively communicate and coordinate with his fellow soldiers, landing him an instructor role at the Army Senior Leaders Course. His Instagram handle is extremely informative and entertaining for anyone looking to learn more about the strategic environment and air defense's role in it. Let's get after it. We have a professional obligation for the ethical application of, uh, of force. You can have a growth mindset where you're always achieving for better. This is about us, about our guard, our reputation. We are all in this together. Outthink, outmaneuver, and outfight the enemy. If you wage war, do it energetically and with severity. This is the only way to make it shorter and consequently less inhumane. Well, thanks for joining us again for another episode of the Raven Report podcast. I'm Chaplain Sanders, and I have a very uh, special guest, Mr. or Sergeant First Class, right? Yep, yep, yep. Ethan Long, uh, better known as a Habitual Line Crosser. So thanks yeah. for being on, man. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah. So, yeah, so um, uh, I found you just kind of scrolling through Instagram, and I saw some of your videos. And I found them absolutely hysterical, but also extremely insightful. I was like, like, uh, this is interesting. That, I mean, you can find funny on social media all day long. And oh, if you yeah. really know, know where to go, you can find like a lot of really good information. But very seldomly do they make a baby. And uh, they absolutely made a baby on your page, man. I, I really enjoy doing it. Um, I, I've, I've made social media content for a long time, but I haven't really found... Uh, what suits me. So I've done a lot of variety, but when I started doing like the green screen mouth over the maps and stuff, uh, it, it all just came together and I can use a lot of my background because before that I was uh, trying to be super informative and people who were following me loved it, but it wasn't getting out there. So I figure if I could marry up, like you said, the humor with the information and the audience just exploded and I loved every bit of it. Yes. So, uh, so you just crossed a hundred thousand followers on Instagram, right? I did. I did. Yeah. Okay. So when, when did you start that? Uh, when did you start habitual line crosser? Uh, well, habitual line crosser started, mm, I want to say 2019. Okay. Um, I, I've done social media for, for years before, actually the, the whole story behind uh, social media, I told it a long time ago on social media was, uh, mm -hmm. I, my last deployment, uh, was in UAE, um, don't want to say anything negatively uh, public, but my ex-wife and I, we had grown apart and uh, she wasn't there when I got home. Nobody was there when I got home. And it was a real rough time for me. And I came home, my house was 54 degrees. The electricity had been turned off. I came home in November. Uh, I mean, everyone else ran to their family and it was, you know, it was a really great thing here at the, the gym here on Fort Sill. And I had nobody. Uh, and it was a real rough time. Uh, it was, it was hard for me. So around that time, I made my first funny video and I did it very selfishly. You know, I, I wanted people to tell me I was great, that I was funny and I, I wanted that feeling. But pretty sh uh, shortly thereafter, I, I kind of figured out that um, if I continue to make people laugh and smile and, and think I could 
save them from whatever's going on in their life for at least, you know, a few minutes at a time, uh, you know, because when you're laughing, you're staring at a video, it, you know, your mortgage doesn't matter. The, the life problems going on doesn't matter. I mean, anything else, it all just kind of bleeds away. And if I could, you know, help people not feel the way I did when I got off that plane, then that was a, a victory for me. Right. So I didn't really have a name at the time. I experimented with a few ones. I was like Big Bob's military surplus for a little while. I was, I just, I, I varied with names, but uh, around that time, I also, I was a battery trainer for my commander and uh, I will call it an ambitious training schedule per our doctrine. You're supposed to have six months to train up a new crew. We had less than 90 days. And so it was chaos. And I was, I mean, I'm burning the candle at both ends. I skipped PT because I was training units or training soldiers during that time. And then I would stay after work and train other uh, soldiers during that time. I was just run ragged. And uh, I bent a few rules to get there. And my commander, he's like, uh, you should have been in a lot of trouble. You're a habitual line crosser, but you get results. And I was like, thanks for playing to my strikes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. That's kind of cool to see uh, where, where names come from. And, and as a chaplain, uh, like uh, you know, names mean mean a lot. It means a lot to uh, uh, Mormons. It means a lot to, to Christians. I mean, everybody. Like names really just carry a lot. And so, like, uh, it's it's super cool to see that you have a very pregnant name that with a lot of meaning and, and stories behind it. Yeah, I, I still talk to that commander every once in a while. He's a good dude. He taught me a ton about property, and I I he let me just hands off kind of run the battery, and it came to fruition. And his battery was just very successful, which is a testament to his ability to kind of run blocker for me for a few things. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, like, I mean, that, that's a, a good uh, tenet of leadership is that when you see talent, enable it and get out of its way. So yeah. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's go back. Like, so um, how long have you been in the army? Uh, I just, so January of this year was 14 years. Okay. So, um, so that, that'll put you joining in like 2010 or so uh january 2009 so 2009 okay so what what led you to, to decide to do that um it was honestly it was an impulse and it was probably <laughs> the stupidest impulse i've ever had but i i never looked back and it was probably the greatest dumb impulse i ever had i was working uh, i was driving a tow truck for my dad love my dad to death but you could give him a hundred million dollars and none of his bills would be paid none of his workers would be paid i love him to death but he just not real good with finances right right and uh I was working my tail off. I pretty much lived in that truck for a matter of a couple of weeks. I pulled in 60 cars, which is roughly around $12,000 for his company. And uh, after I finally got home, he's like, all right, I'm going to crunch the numbers and get your paycheck. Cool. And to this day, I tell you, if he would have given me a triple digit paycheck, I would not have joined the army, but he handed me a paycheck for $23. And yeah, I said, thank you. Uh, you know, cause I'm not, I've never been ungrateful. And I said, uh, thank you. I put it in gas in my truck. I drove to the recruiter station. I was gone two weeks later. <laughs> Didn't even look back. Yeah, <laughs> that was that was it for me. So how old were you when 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 all that went happened? Um, I was about 18 and a half, almost 19. Okay, when that all happened. So right. uh, I initially tried I was going to join right after high school. Um, and I, I talked myself out of it like everybody does. Right. You know, fear of the unknown. Uh, so when this whole thing happened, uh, I tell everybody, if you're thinking about joining the military, pull the trigger. Don't think about it. Don't wait, because the longer you wait, the more you're going to talk yourself out of it. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. So, um, so you go to the recruiter's office, you sit down and you're like, I want to be a what, or how did that conversation go? So I had taken the ASVAB previously because I was actually going to join the Marine Corps, uh, talk myself out of it. That was my, you know, and my mom, her big thing was like, I don't care what branch you join if you're going to just check them all out. And I have a brother and a sister in the Navy, younger sister just joined a few years ago. Uh, my older brother, he actually is retiring this year from the Navy. Oh, awesome. uh, he's a senior chief petty officer. So 
Um, so for me, I was like Air Force or Army. So they took my ASVAB score and I'm not gonna lie, I took the ASVAB and I kind of just clicked on through it. I didn't even think about it. I've actually recently retaken the ASVAB and I got a much better score uh, for <laughs> career opportunities. And uh, so I had no, no convictions. I had no t- real tattoos. I didn't really have anything wrong. So I was like a prime candidate. I'd already taken the ASVAB. So they gave me this huge list of jobs. And I looked down this list and I kind of just zoned off because just my brain wandered. And I looked and on the wall, there was a guy standing with an M4 in front of an Abrams. And I was like, can I do that? And he was like, oh yeah, 19 kilo, you leave next week. So for the first three years, I'm, I was a 19 kilo before I reclassed. Right. He's like, sweet. We were like just looking for these uh, low density MOS. <laughs> yeah. I was like, all right, cool. I'll see you. <laughs> so you take off and you, and, uh, you go be, become a tanker. Yep. I uh, went to Fort Knox Disney Barracks 2009. I graduated May 2009. Was it May? Yeah, May. And then I reported to Fort Carson, 1st Brigade Combat Team, 122 Infantry. And I was there till 2012 with one short, uh, well, one about year in Afghanistan. In right. There. Okay. So, okay. So, um, what was, uh, what was basic training like back then? Uh, cause I went through in 05 and it was, it was rapidly changing, uh, for me. So I can only imagine it's probably a lot different for you. Yeah. Uh, so I was OSIT. So I, I, I don't really know uh, how different that is for you guys. So like, obviously we had our basic training, but then our AIT was just basic training, but with tanks, like that's right. it, the same exact feeling. Um, for me, it was, I mean, once you get it in your brain, that the drill sergeants are there to kind of push you to your breaking point. Like that's their job. The whole thing becomes a little bit easier. And for me, I follow, and I've learned this about myself, and I wouldn't have learned this throughout without basic training, without Afghanistan and all the other you know experiences I've had. Three weeks is my break. Usually around three weeks, I like I get mad, I yell, I scream, I maybe you know hit a wall locker or something like that. And then after that, nothing affects me. You want me up all night, you want me out in the cold, the heat, nothing. Like once I hit that break, I'm like, I don't care. Nothing you do to me will will even affect me anymore. Um, so that's that's pretty much what I learned about that break was in uh in Fort Knox Kentucky it was um the 2009 January was one of the worst ice storms they had had in about 20 years so the whole base got shut down it was just it was miserable uh we were out there with you know our boots and sledgehammers breaking apart the ice we had trees coming down on top of buildings so but you know the army never stopped so we were training in that kind of environment uh, which was really spooky and uh, honestly a testament to our drill sergeants because I know that was miserable for them too. Yeah. <laughs> it was, um, you know, it's funny. People always say that the standards for basic training change a lot. And I do talk to a lot of drill sergeants even now, and it doesn't really seem that different aside from the lack of disparaging terms, which, you know, in and of itself is not necessarily good for building a cohesive team. Right. Uh, people say it makes you tough. Well, if you look at certain other countries out there, karate chopping bricks makes them tough. Well, we train on Tomahawk cruise missiles. There's a little bit different. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. There's so varieties of tough. So. Yeah. So there's a, I mean, obviously austere conditions breed a level of mental tough, toughness. So they still do that. They still put the, the soldiers out there, the recruits out there in the hot, in the cold, in the rain. Uh, they put rucks on them. You cover large amounts of distance with that. I mean, it's, it's to show you, really what you are capable of if you put your mind to it. Um, and that's the, at least the mentality they used to be instilling in people. I not a hundred percent sure nowadays, I know drill sergeants that I talk to say that their hands are significantly more tied, but I believe you and I probably have a relatively similar experience. Yeah. Well, whenever I went, so I went to an 05 uh, and they were kind of coming out of the uh, like 
you know, like we're going to fight out of foxholes kind of mentality. And we were starting mm-hmm. to look at like Iraq and thinking like, okay, well, how do we prep these guys for, um, you know, mount training? How do we prep these guys for like convoy ops? Stuff like that. So a lot of our basic training guys was re- really geared towards that conflict. And now like talking to the recruits that come through that they kind of started to, to revert back to that LISCO environment where it's like, okay, like what would, what would combat look like if we were to go like to war with like a near peer adversary and you try to tailor yeah. that, you know, um, still very, uh, it, it was very, uh, uh, let's see, I guess, uh, a- adverse and combative uh, in the way that information was con- uh, conveyed. We'll say that, but, yeah. uh, yeah, sounded very similar. Um, so what was it like to drive a tank for the first time? Uh, it is, so it was, it's the weirdest parallel you'll ever experience. So on one side, it is, you feel like you're invincible. You feel like you, the nothing in this world can stop you. So the first time I drove a tank, it was at the mud course at Fort Knox. And if you're not in a track vehicle, you can't drive on the mud course. It's physically impossible. You'll go three feet off the road and that's it. You can't get anywhere else, but armored vehicles and track vehicles, they sink all the way to the bottom. They just kind of push their way through. So uh, first time I drove when I ran through an aspen tree that was probably 12 inches in diameter. And I was like, hey, sorry, I'm going to hit this tree. And he's like, don't worry. And he moved the gun over the right uh, front uh, road wheel or side skirt. Sorry, some tankers are going to kill me now. Uh, right. And uh, I didn't even feel it. I just watched the tree drop and it was gone. And I just kept on rolling. I, it was really cool. But then a little while later, we're coming up over these hills and there was water in front of me. And we were already moving probably 10 miles an hour. So he just said, you know, give her all she's got. Don't even slow down. So I, I throttle up as hard as I possibly can. Cause I know I have to get through this. And I remember seeing the water come up this brown, muddy water come up my front slope. And then my periscopes, all I saw was bubbles and water started pouring in. And that's when I felt like I was going to die. Like I'm just hard on the throttle. Everything I got, I know I was spinning my tracks. I couldn't see anything. Cause when you're in the driver's hold, like you just fender and fender is pretty much all you see. Right. And uh, luckily about, which felt like forever is probably about maybe three, four seconds. I finally saw light and the water started slowing down coming in. So then I turned on the bilge pump, which all Abrams have. And yeah, that was terrifying. So it's a weird parallel. You feel invincible, but then you get in water and it's like, this is the scariest thing I've ever experienced. Yeah, man. That's, that's, I have so many questions about that. Like, so like tanks have a bilge pump, like a John boat would have a bilge pump. <laughs> yep. Uh, it's either 50 or a hundred gallons per minute. It's been a while since I was on a tank. So that's quite a uh, bilge pump. <laughs> oh yeah. It's got a lot of power. Yeah, a lot, a lot better than my little sixteen foot aluminum boat. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. So, uh, and it's it's also really cool. So, um, for for perspective, we just came back from Poland, like my battalion did. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that I thought was really really fascinating is that like uh, so the Abrams is built for for like just you know open ground combat, but yep. in that that corner of the the world, there's a lot of water. And so all of those guys, like you, you see like propellers on the back of, of a lot of these like old BMPs and stuff to be able to float. So I could see how like driving a tank that's not meant for water into water could be very, very scary because it's absolutely not going to float. Unless it's yeah, there's, and there's no escape. Like once you're in there, there's, there's no escape. Like you're, you're just kind of stuck. So hope, hopefully you come out the far side and that bilge pump can pump out the water fast enough. Wow. Okay, cool. So you graduate uh, base training, you head to Fort Carson in a land of mountains uh, where tanks don't generally like to thrive. No, uh, <laughs> I was, uh, I kind of lucked out though. So I was originally from Colorado. So I was about 70 miles from home. Oh, okay, and cool. I, I guess if I was going to convey anything to new soldiers joining, don't do that. Uh, okay. Get away from home. Um, and the, the only reason I say that is because I dealt with, you know, army things, drama, we'll call it that, right? But I was also dealing with family ones at the exact same time. So 
a few hundred miles, give yourself that space and kind of learn more about yourself, hang out with your friends, do, do stuff like that. I actually, and, and a lot of people give me the same look you did when I said, don't do that. You're like, oh, you don't want to be near family. It was, I was having to deal with the army and my family at the same time. Maybe just because my family's a bunch of nutcases. I'm not sure. Right. So, <laughs> no, that, that makes sense. And so I had a, a, a good friend of mine who's an ER doctor had like seven daughters, right? And he would always oh, give, wow. yeah, it was it, like, it, it's a, a complete, uh, oh, it, it's a whole other story. But uh, he would um, uh, tell his daughters whenever like their husband or like, their future husband would show up, be like, hey, can I marry your daughter? And he was, he was yes, provided you take her and you get at least like two or 300 miles away from here. And <laughs> it would always be like, like, that's so weird. And he was like, he goes, yep, because if not, we'll like completely ruin that relationship. And so like, uh, he would not give his like blessing on it unless they had like some kind of set plan that like, we will now move to, you know, Nebraska or wherever. And, that's crazy. Yeah. Uh, but like, I will say this, like in terms of like uh, fathers, like absolutely want to like, kind of like the, uh, the heroes that I have, I, like, I kind of, you know, try to model myself after because like the dude was like super smart and a lot of it was like really intuitive. I asked him one time, I was like, how did you raise your daughters to be just so good? Because they're really well adjusted. And he was like, well, you just treat them like dogs. And I was like, what? Like, like and he, he was, yeah, like, he was like, when they're, they're real little, they're just like puppies. Like, they're just like wild animals and stuff. So you just kind of treat them the same way, a lot of praise. And, and you know, uh, you try to coach them that way. And I guess uh, I never thought about it like that. Yeah. Oh, he, he's a, he's a super intelligent. I mean, he, he ran the, uh, the ER at our, ho our hometown, town, excuse me, hometown for years. And uh, like super intelligent guy, extremely quirky. Uh, but so like he saw things very um, like without any emotional bias. It was just real logical, everything. And so uh, mm -hmm. getting his perspective on stuff was really, really cool. But back to the point is that like, I think he would uh, very much approve uh, of that statement. It's like, you know, if you're going to enlist, make sure you get a contract to take you somewhere else. So Yeah, at least a little distance from family. Like right now where I'm at, I'm about 12 hours from home. That's a good like barrier to, all right, we can do this. Yeah. Like a one day drive, but yeah, that, it's going to cost you to go. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so you get to Fort Carson. Uh, what's the next big event that happens? Um, we did, oh, let me see. Uh, there was a lot of training. Oh man, our training schedule was, was chaos. So it's interesting, you know, obviously I was a 19 kilo, but we got orders to go to Afghanistan and there was no tanks in Afghanistan at this time. The United States did not have any tanks there. I think maybe the Marine Corps had one or yeah. two, but I'm not certain. Um, so they took away my Abrams. It was an M1A2 SEP V2 main battle tank uh, named Divine Intervention. I love that tank. <laughs> and, uh, so they took that away, handed me an M14 EBR and said, you're going to be light infantry now and you're going to run patrols. So I was, I went to a designated marksman course and I, that's what we got prepped to do. Uh, we did a rotation at the Joint Readiness Training Center, Fort, Fort Polk, Louisiana. Yep. Anyone ever tells you that part of Louisiana is beautiful this time of year, doesn't matter what time of year it is, they're lying to you. Uh, <laughs> yep. No, I'm from Texarkana. So like, I'm, I'm, I'm very familiar with that, with that terrain. So. Oh man. So yeah. You ever done a JRTC rotation? No, I've done several NTC rotations, but it always lucked out. I was always like, I will go to the desert all the time over doing, like I'll go, I'll go to NTC five times over doing one JRTC rotation because I, I know I, what it's like. <laughs> I've never, I've lucked out and never had to do NTC. So, right. um, we uh, so we did that, and then we also did uh, one of the big training events was called Raider Blitz, and that was oh, that was miserable because we were the Raider Brigade, and so each battalion in the brigade set up their own lane, and it was kind of cool though. We had like a live fire lane, we got to do an air assault lane, like we did a whole bunch of different different cool infantry things that tankers don't normally get to do. Mm. Downside was in one of the lanes it was the seven ten cav lane. Uh, we had to walk, uh, I think it was. 
10 miles total. We started out, there was nothing on the ground. By the time we finished, there was three feet of snow on the ground. Oh, so, wow. and we had a 6,000 foot elevation climb during this entire uh, March. And we were getting engaged, you know, obviously simulated engagements. We were reacting to contact. We were just completely soaked. It was, it was miserable. But uh, I think, you know, some of those austere conditions and things like that you experience with members of your platoon, because we were all equal. I mean, obviously you had your team leaders, you had your platoon sergeant, squad leaders, things, but um, we were all out there in the suck together. So I, I do like that about the Army is that it doesn't, you're not some weird person in a corner office who is above everybody else. You're there in the nitty gritty with all your guys. And that's the way the Army works. So yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, after, over over the years, I've, I've been afforded the opportunity to work with both the Air Force and the, and the Navy on different projects in weird places. And mm -hmm. one thing I've noticed that is that the the Army and the Marines, because because of that exact dynamic, is that like that you're you're there with your guys suffering through all kinds of terribleness. That like the other services kind of like raise their eyebrow and like I don't want to have anything to do with that. Mm -hmm. uh, it absolutely kind of knits you together as a team, grows you as a person, and uh, it gives you, I mean, it, it, it does come at a cost that, that, that it's a, maybe a miserable time, but yeah. in the end, like the, the end product is, is, is incredibly valuable. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I can totally see where you're coming from on that. Absolutely. Uh, I did work with the Marine Corps once closely. I was part of the Operation Afghan Welcome recently, uh, well, about okay. a year or two ago. Uh, and we worked with 2-6 Mu, uh, the Marine Expeditionary Unit out of uh, Lejeune. Mm -hmm. And those guys, I will tell you this, Marines, they get a lot larger left and right limits than the Army does when it comes to an actual operation. They were transporting military gear with U-Haul trucks. They were swiping those government travel cards. They were Chinook, uh, not Chinooking, uh, Ospreying in like their own gear, their own MREs, their own uh, forklifts to download everything. Like they were completely self-sustaining and they moved fast. It was, it was impressive. But I would have gone to jail for swiping my uh, government travel card on any of those. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like th their size definitely. Uh, their size and doctrine really is kind of like a, an enabling factor. That they they can be smaller, and when you get the smaller an organization gets, the more trust you can kind of start to to allow. And yeah. then you know their their doctrine is extremely um, man. Like how do you? What's the best? It's maneuver warfare, like M MCP one or whatever. But the uh, the the tenets of it is basically just like shared understanding a lot of trust and and a lot of like hey go do this thing and then we'll we'll revisit it kind of coach you and we'll go do it do it again and so like that you can see whenever they they get deployed to do something that really kind of comes to fruition and it's pretty cool to watch so so yeah yeah I, it was they moved very fast and needed very little oversight we were just like we don't know where we're gonna house you we'll figure it out and they just started showing up like it was yeah. strange <laughs> Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, um, did you happen to work with uh, anybody that was like a civilian to help help him coordinate uh, people moving in and out of Afghanistan? Uh, well, so I I worked in the G cell for Task Force okay. Pickett. I was in Fort Pickett, Virginia, um, which I think Fort Pickett has now been changed. It was one of the other bases they changed because Pickett was named after a, a Confederate general. Um, yeah, I believe. Um, don't know what it's called now, but I worked. Uh, there was a civilian. So at first I was in the G cell, then I was a contracting officer's representative. So I was in charge of around 200 trailers, 5,000 people. Uh, I was making sure all the contracting happened over there. Right. Um, most of everybody, I mean, we had every branch on the ground, but there was a few GS uh, employees. I'm not sure what their jobs. Okay. Yeah. So the reason I asked is that we had a guy named uh, uh, Worth Parker on the podcast. It is, it, the episode hasn't aired yet, but um whenever that happened they he, there was like a, a kind of like a, this little 
splinter cell of Marines that, that had gotten out and moved on or whatever that they wanted to bring their their translators home. And so they started trying to work and, you know, like calling up people like, hey, can you get this guy on, on this plane or whatever? Worth got pulled into that. And so we like we have another episode that by the time this one comes out, it will have come out where we talk pretty extensively about how that that happened. So it's just kind of cool to see that you were involved in it in like another aspect. But like he was also kind of coordinating that that as well. Oh, wow. That's super cool. Yeah, it was it was it was a, a pretty interesting uh conversation he ended up ghostwriting a book called uh, always faithful and it's about that it's about another guy who's trying to get his his translator out and now they have like a, a movie out and all this other kind of stuff oh, wow. i don't know if it's about the same thing but it's the same kind of thing so um yeah so i don't want to lose, lose track of it so you go to afghanistan where do you go uh i was in rc south malajat um okay it uh wasn't hell but i could see it from there uh <laughs> right yeah <laughs> So experiences may vary in Afghanistan. You know, it's, I, I guess that's one of the things I definitely want to convey to everybody. Some people, and um, they had really good experiences in Afghanistan. I, I love my experiences. I wouldn't trade them for the world, but I also wouldn't wish them on my worst enemy. Yeah. Um, so running a lot of light infantry patrols, according to my ARCOM, because I kind of lost track. So I, I usually quote that because I have no idea how much we did. It's uh, over 480 dismounted combat patrols, found 11 improvised explosive devices and captured one insurgent alive. That was one bullet on my on my ARCOM. So, right. uh, so we, we were working. We were we were pretty busy. That's a lot of walking, man. <laughs> yeah, we covered a lot of miles. Our commander and I understand why he did it. Uh, Captain Oberding, I believe he's a lieutenant colonel now. Um, he was not a nice or personable commander. And I would say this to his face, but he was methodical in everything that he did. Right. Um, so he wanted us a minimum of 20 hours in sector a day per platoon. Uh, and the reason for that is we eventually saw it is the amount of attacks, the amount of IEDs started going downhill very fast because they couldn't maneuver. We denied the enemy freedom of maneuver because we were constantly out. So you're just all over the place. So. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. That actually is, is pretty smart. If you want to basically kind of control control the area put everybody out there walking around yep they couldn't do much without us knowing about it and we caught a few of them doing things they weren't supposed to so right so uh so you come back and then then what happens so i came back and um i i'll be honest with you i loved the fight uh, at least that time in my life i was a young kid uh, still still pretty angry i wanted to go back i had some unfinished business um during that time president obama was downsizing armor um, that was his big push. Tanks weren't being used as much. And I, I get that, you know, politicians, they, they flex uh, funding where the, the war needs it. Right. Right. Um, so I went to reenlist. I said, I love this. I want to keep fighting. And they said, Hey, pick a new job or you got to head to the house. And I said, okay, well, what's available. And uh, they offered me 14 echo, 14 tango and vet tech. Um, and the way they were explained to me, and I'll explain what they are in a minute. Um, yeah. I'm explaining. Explaining. <laughs> uh, one guy shoots the missile. One guy tells him to shoot the missile. Uh, and then vet tech. And I was like, well, I want to shoot the missile. Um, come to find out. Uh, so I am a 14 echo now. So that's what I, which is Patriot fire control enhanced operator maintainer. So I, um, I operate initialize and maintain the Patriot system as a whole, or at least the fire control aspects, the big four, big five, 14 tango are the launch station guys. They're the ones who run down range, power up my launchers, get the, the missiles hot. Uh, they're running around out there. Their job is way more dangerous because if i'm bad at mine i could easily crush or barbecue one of them no. um yeah it's pretty dangerous for them downrange because those those missiles don't care uh but i'm i couldn't be happier with the job that i picked uh, honestly at first i i was not happy i i spun my wheels i was like this is uh not for me 
you know, I don't want to do this. And then when I got here to Fort Carson or Fort Sill after I did a tour in Korea, so I reclassed, I went or here at Fort Sill, I did a year in Korea. I am processed people. I didn't even really do air defense stuff. I came back here. I was like, this is dumb. I'm not, I'm, I'm a tanker. I'm going back to being a tanker, blah, blah, blah. Like that was my mentality. And they threw me on gate guard. And if you are an air defender and you're put on gate guard, I'm going to be completely transparent. You are useless to your organization because <laughs> air defenders are needed uh, yeah. very much so. And so that was my come to Jesus. And I was like, I, I'm going to give it all I got when I get back. So I did my six months on gate guard. I got back to the unit. And in a matter of three years, I went from pretty much knowing nothing about Patriot to being a top scoring tactical control assistant in my battalion, uh, setting records and then becoming a battery trainer. So like I complete 180 because I, and then I started loving this job. That's where it right. got to me. That's kind of cool that you start putting a lot of effort into it. And all of a sudden it starts to kind of like, almost like give back to you. That's just like, if you're super resistant to it, then yeah, it's just going to be like this drudgery or whatever. But if you kind of like change your mindset about it, you're like, I'm going to be the best I possibly can. Even if I do hate it, eventually you kind of get to where you like it. Yeah. Uh, I tell everybody, no matter what job you pick in the army, I, I, my big saying is I have the best job in the army. And if I reclass tomorrow, I'd still have the best job in the army. No matter where I'm at, I have the best job in the army. Right. Um, and that's the way I tell everyone to think about it. But I tell them when you get to a job, when you pick, cause there's a lot of reclasses in air defense cause air defense needs people. We desperately need people. Um, drink the Kool-Aid. You know, everyone's always like, I'm going to be cool and not think that this stuff is awesome. Your air defenders, your pogues, whatever, right? Drink the Kool-Aid, enjoy it a little bit. And it'll blow your mind. There's so much you can learn about this job. Um, so that's why I, that that's kind of the message I try and convey. And that was my mental process. Just took me a couple of years to do it. To kind of like make that shift. What do you, what, what's your favorite part about the job? Um, I love tactics. So when I was thrown in that van, uh, the van is the ECS, the engagement control station. It's kind of the central hub. There's three crew members in there, the TCA tactical control assistant, the CSO, the communication systems operator, and the TCO, which is the tactical control officer. Now don't let assistants and officer kind of get confused there. Usually the TCA has a lot more tactics experience than the TCO. The TCO is mainly there. And I, I hate saying this, but it's the truth is to go to jail. If I do something wrong, right. um, they're ultimately responsible for what happens inside the system, but they rely, you know, it's a good crew dynamic. Right. So for me, I was a CSO communications guy for like a year and some change. And I, every time we failed and I failed a lot of air battles, I failed like dozens of air battles, uh, which is a simulation that we run. Every time we failed, I learned something. So I, I try to tell people that I didn't fail. All I did was learn every time and I got better. Uh, so I, I kept learning and I changed the way I, I operated, the way my crew operated and, and our evaluator, every time she would come see us, she would see that our, our TTPs changed because of something that we failed from the last time is I would check him. He would check me. We would talk to the officer together and it just, the crew dynamic builds together. That's how you build good crew cohesion. And then my uh, TCA, nothing against him. He kind of had a mental break. There were some things going on in his life. And we needed a new TCA. So my commander said, hey, Sergeant Long, you're it. Uh, hop in that seat. And I was like, this is going to be rough. It takes six months to train a TCA. I filled the role and I certified in five days. Well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I, I spent about 23 hours a day inside there, but uh, okay. I, I did it in five days. And I mean, for the first air battle, my, my TCO carried me because I wasn't as good. But as soon as I passed, and I was certified, I kept reading and kept digging in the doctrine. And I wanted to learn more. And why do I do this? Why do I do that? I didn't want to just push the buttons. And that's where I really fell in love with tactics because everything that the enemy does, you have to be able to counter it. So right. like 
on my TikToks or my Instagram, when I talk about hypersonics to someone's like, well, what if it, what if it dives faster than you're expecting? Well, there's, there's an alternate dive calculation we can do. Well, what if it opens up and a bunch of missiles come out? There's things we can do for that. Well, what if it does little flippy do? There's things we can do for that. So like everything that people throw at me, the system and what I know is I, and there's, there's no way to know everything about tactics. It's physically impossible. You could take a CW5, you could take you know, top guns, master gunners, they don't know everything. And that's what I love about this job is I learn something new every single day. Yeah. Sorry, it was a long answer for a. No, you gave me a ton. I've been, like, I've been trying to get better about taking notes. So whenever people talk, <laughs> we kind of come back to it. So you give me tons of stuff. So this is what I'd kind of like to do to kind of like flesh that out. Like, tell me about an air battle. Like, cause like, uh, like I'm coming from a, I was aviation as a crew chief and then mm-hmm. I was infantryman and now I'm a chaplain in an infantry land. So I have no idea. Uh, like I, I know how to throw a rocket on a helicopter and send it out, but I don't know anything about actually fighting in the air. Uh, okay. then, then, uh, once we kind of get that, like, let's talk about tactical employment. Like, what does that look like? Like what, and, and then from an infantry perspective, how do we best use you to both, both enable you and protect us? And then, uh, then lastly, I do want to get to the hypersonic things. That was like what the first video I saw of you. I was like, oh man, this guy actually knows what a hypersonic missile is. And I have a kind of a, a weird background in that too. So I was like, I started listening okay. to it. I was, I was like, oh, he actually, he actually does know what he's talking about. Uh, <laughs> most people don't. So, so it's kind of cool. Uh, so, so give, give me a, 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 an air battle. Like what, when you say air battle, what is that? So an air battle, uh, they have different levels. ABML is what they're referred to as air battle management level. And you have one all the way to 16. And 16 being, honestly, 16 is just like a spicy 11. It's really not that bad. But there's air battles you use for certifications, which is 5, 11, and 16. So okay. that's your table 4, your table 8, and your table 12. Uh, okay. Those are the, the certification air battles. Now, what an air battle is, is it's usually around 24 to 48 hours compacted into an hour and a half or less. So it's complete and utter chaos. There's things happening faster than they ever would in real life. Right. And you are unbelievably overwhelmed the task saturation that is happening there because you're trying to reconfigure your system make sure your radar is configured correctly you're trying to pass up your reports you're trying to deconflict things that are in the airspace based off of their their flight profiles kinematic criteria if they have iff codes if they don't like there's so many little small processes it's unbelievably overwhelming uh so what we do is per the dot eight six which is I don't know if it's a TC or an ATP. It changes back and forth depending on the year. But a 3-01.86 is our um, it's our Patriot Bible. And you have the foundation target set or the FTS and the threat focus tracks, the TFTs. So what you do is you take the FTS and the TFTs and those together create what an air battle of that level looks like. It'll tell you, hey, you're supposed to have this many unknowns. You're supposed to have this many cruise missiles, ballistic missiles. It lets you kind of just break it down. And it says your air battle has to be a minimum for evaluation purposes, uh, 29 minutes, or it has to be 47 minutes, or it has to be, so that tells you your minimum. And then you can go above that anytime you want. And that allows you as the individual to create dynamic and changing air battles. So I can, it can be a, an ABML five, but if they've never seen it before, I can program everything based on the timing and I know what's coming, but the crew doesn't know what's coming. So they don't know how to react. Right. Uh, and so it's a way we test uh, our crews and our crews still today, right now in CENTCOM, we are one of the only um, jobs in the world that actually do certifications while we're deployed. We do them every 30 days. Oh, wow. We're constantly certifying. Yeah. Well, yeah. Because- so I, I, I guess the, uh, like, 
as Intel starts feeding, like these are the, the way that the, the new threats, these are the new TTPs where else you guys have to be kind of be on your game to stay on top of, of that changing like battle space. That makes sense. All so, the time. Yeah. So like, so um, in terms of like air threats, y'all, you, I'm, I'm assuming you're ready for pretty much anything that's in the air. So, uh, so like, what do y'all train for? Train so, so me specifically uh, working with Patriots. So Thad doesn't, doesn't really incorporate certain threats. Uh, I guess the best way to explain it is, uh, so the United States employs what's called defense in depth or um, layered air defense. So there's a lot of layers they have to come through. Some of these layers, how do I word this? I'm, I got a tap dance here a little bit, sorry. Um, uh, some of these things can't shoot in areas that those threats would be present in because their area is above, below, wherever. Whatever. Okay, yeah, I got, so I got you. I got you. Patriot is a bit of a jack of all trades. There are certain systems like the LPWS, Land-Based Phalanx Weapon System, which is some people call it CRAM. You may be familiar with that yeah. one. Yeah. Uh, that one is mainly for short-range rockets, artillery, and mortars. Mm -hmm. That's why rocket, artillery, and mortar, CRAM. Um, I never knew and, that. And, but yeah. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> so uh, there's that one. And then you have like stingers, which are for, you know, aircraft, they're heat seeking, but heat seeking isn't good against anything except for, and honestly, I've been impressed the Ukrainians shooting down cruise missiles with stingers, which is right. crazy impressive. Uh, I never thought to employ like deep uh, man pad stingers and as their overflight of the cruise missiles catching up to them, which is I honestly, a testament to their ability. I never even thought to employ the system like that. That's pretty wild. Um, but Patriot is good for cruise missile, ballistic missile, rotary wing, fixed wing, um, and UAS, uh, unmanned aerial surveillance. So it's, it's in that middle ground where it can cover a good chunk of things. It won't mess with the ICBM category. That's normally, I mean, if it does, it's, it's because somebody else failed to hit it. Um, but that's not normally their role, but everything in between is Patriot is our, that's why everyone loves that system is because it hits that, the area you need to for all of these threats simultaneously. Makes sense. So it's kind of a good catch all that if you just had one, that's the one that you, you want to have because it can yeah. pretty much do whatever. Okay. Yeah. Makes sense. So let's talk, like you said, like you really like love tactics. Mm -hmm. So um, we do too, but I, I'm gonna, I would imagine that our tactics and your tactics, while probably are the same at the core, probably look different because we have different kind of concerns and and uh, and we're doing different analysis because you know, we don't have to shoot down the, you know like yeah. and stuff like that. So but, so yeah, so speak to that. Um, so tactics. Uh, this one's going to be kind of hard to answer because all of our tactics fall into the uh, classified non-disclosure uh, category. Oh, all right, well. <laughs> so um, what I can say is everything out there means something. So when my radar detects an object, I need to know every last piece of data that you can imagine about that object. So that way, if it doesn't want to tell me what it is, I can tell it already what it is. Right. Um, kind of I need to... Yeah. So my, my operators, when I train them, um, we have something called, so normally we're all networked together and then we're networked with a higher echelon unit. And at the higher echelon unit, we do practice when the higher echelon unit is not there. Uh, we practice like, Hey, you've lost comms with them. You need to figure it out. Right. So in our TTP document, it says like, if this happens, you'll do this. If this happens, you'll do this. If you, so what I do as a battery trader, one of the things that I've loved doing and it gets your crews very comfortable with exercising that criteria, like making their own decisions, because a lot of people are scared to push that button because they've never had to make those decisions on their own. And I will tell everybody this, when you are training a crew, throw them something so ambiguous, they have to make a decision that is outside of doctrine. 
So I would create things that would never exist in real life. And I would throw them at them at random times. And like, at first they were looking at me like, what do I do? I'm like, make a decision, (laughs) figure it out. That's what you have to do, you know, and you got to be either, you know, you're either going to be judged by 12 or carried by six at this point. You, you, you figure out exactly what you're going to do. And when you get them so comfortable with those numbers and what they have to do, what they're used to seeing, we do things called SPEARS, which stands for Standardized Patriot Evaluation and Assessment of Readiness, which is where another brigade from another unit sends their people down to evaluate our crews. And it's just an outside look to make sure that our battery trainers aren't faking the funk and saying, yeah, they're good to go, right? They're actually being trained. And uh, when I started doing that to my crews and when we went to the SPEAR, they knocked out comms. That was their evaluation. Like, hey, we're going to kill comms. You guys are on your own. Every other crew except for my guys got crushed. My guys were like, cool, I'm used to this. And they just started running it. They started making, you know, pulling the trigger. Why did you do this? Well, because of A, B, and C. Well, why did you do this? Because of this, this, and this. Like they knew what they were talking about. They were confident in their abilities. And that's what I love training about them when it comes to things like tactics. So I, yeah. I guess that's the easiest way to. No, no. And, and that's super cool because so um, the Marines just came out with a, uh, a paper of like how to use what we would call LERS teams, long range surveillance. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and like, like the, what's the new purpose of the scout in, in multi-domain operations? And one of the things that kind of came out of that was that like almost immediately, if we were to fight a, a near peer adversary, we would lose all C2 nodes. Like, like your, your battalion talk would just be disappeared. And like and then everybody's out by themselves. So the kind of the the uh, you know fraction line of that whole paper was what you need to do is do exactly what you're talking about is that like you need to teach your people how how to work independently by themselves with a like a kind of a, a shared understanding of what's happening and then act with with initiative and so like it, I know at least in my battalion we train that like uh, extensively it's just like okay like you're gonna be out here by yourself what do you do and uh, and then try to react to uh, you know things as as they train or as they as they change. So it's super cool that, that you're doing that. And it's very much in line with any threats that we can predict coming down the, the pipeline. And of course, like, you know, there'll always be some random, you know, no one ever thought about an event that we, we actually get deployed to. But like, yeah, <laughs> that seems the way, the way it always goes. Um, yeah, so you, you talk about um, UAS a little bit uh, and, and t- you know, using the, the Patriot to take that down. One of the big things that that we saw come out of uh, the... Uh, Azerbaijan Armenia fight and then carried on over into Ukraine was the 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 operational and then tactical level deployment of uh, of UAS systems uh, for for war fighting. So you like as a, as an air defender, what's your perspective on that? So um, the way the United States military looks at UAS, uh, and this is coming directly from the counter UAS school, um, is also something we teach. Is they have categories or classes, class one through class five. Uh, you know, your Global Hawks, your Predators, your Reapers, those are more class fives, class four. I think Global Hawk is five, Reaper, I think is class four. Um, you know, it's based on how far they can fly, how big they are, their radar cross-section, payload. There's there's a lot of variables. Uh, now, your class ones and class twos are as simple as a $200 uh, Walmart drone. The United States, uh, we realize that we do have some issues with these drones, right? Like uh, UAE, and, and I, I love when people say, well, a Patriot can't stop a drone because it happened in Saudi Arabia. I know exactly why that happened in Saudi Arabia. I, I know in detail exactly why that happened. But what I tell people is that happened in Saudi. The same drones tried to hit the Emiratis in UAE and the Emiratis had Patriot and they smoked those drones. So obviously it's not a system problem. It's a person so problem. I'll, yeah, I'll let somebody kind of <laughs> read in between the lines there. Right. Um, 
So now not every country in the world has bottomless oil money like the Emirates uh, who can waste a $3 million Patriot missile on a $200 drone. They did that. <laughs> that was that was a thing that they did. Yeah. Um, so we've got new systems coming online. One of the new ones that I've talked about is the DEM Shored Directed Energy Maneuver Short Range Air Defense. It's a uh, striker with a laser on top of it. Mm -hmm. And it's a 50 kilowatt laser. And for the cost of about a gallon of diesel, it can drop a drone. So about $4 to drop a drone nowadays for the US. Um, the range, uh, I don't know if the range is on class, so I'm going to go ahead and leave that one out, but it's got a right. decent amount of range to it. Um, so MSHORAD, so years ago, like five years ago, we started getting rid of short range air defense because we didn't need it, right? No one cared about it. Ukraine pops off and we're realizing the, the crazy value that short range air defense brings to the fight. And now all of a sudden, ManPad School is back up and running. I'm actually going to try and go to it. I know the first sergeant over there. I, there's no reason for me to go to ManPad School, but I just want to go shoot stingers in the Stinger Dome because yeah, why not? And there is a reason because it's cool. So. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> um, so we got that coming back. Um, the All the Avengers are actually going to uh, the reserves or the reserve component are getting all of our Avengers. That's the Humvee mounted Stingers with the 50 cal because we have our kinetic MSHORAD which has originally it was supposed to be two Hellfires, a rocket pod of Stingers, and then a 30 mic mic. The Hellfires, they've had some issues. So they actually reconfigured that. The Hellfires were twisting the uh, the turret ring on top of the um, yeah, the, the chassis. So it wasn't, it's just too dangerous and it was causing too much damage. So they got rid of those. So now it has two Stinger pods. It's got the 30 mic mic. And then it's got its own onboard radar, which is something the uh, the Avenger never had. It has its own onboard like corner reflector radar, but it can also network into larger radar systems. That's pretty wild, man. So, um, so talking about radar, uh, one of the, one of my big takeaways uh, just from observing our last NTC rotation was uh, they were they were very uh, particular about us emitting electronic signatures because all of a sudden once you start emitting like any sort of like uh, radar. Next thing you know, you're a target for for some sort of, of indirect fire. So, yes. um, so you're talking about like using radar for for defense. How is like? And I don't know. Try not to word this in a way that is going to get you into like some kind of weird classified. Uh, no, you're good. I, I'm pretty good about dancing around these things. <laughs> yeah. So, like, how is how can you can you and how can you if you can uh, use active radar to actually detect threats coming in without simultaneously putting a, a target on on you know the top of your head for you know the next you know threat so i will say that there's no guarantee there is none at all whatsoever um however something up there to detect my radar would have to be far enough away that it couldn't die from my radar um so Patriot does have the ability to shoot down arms, anti-radiation missiles fired off of planes. I forgot about that. That's another threat as well. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> uh, we do we do have the ability. That's something that we we train on pretty regularly. Um, we have done uh, test missions with these things. It's never happened in real life. We've never had to do it in real life. Um, there was a right after, in 2003 after Patriot shot down those two friendlies. There was a F-16 that says it was locked onto by Patriot, but Patriot doesn't really lock on. That's not the way the system works. Um, and then it shot our radar with a harm. Um, but from what I understand, based on the aspect ratio, it was behind the radar. So the radar couldn't even couldn't even engage it or see it if it if it wanted to. Right. Because uh, our radar doesn't like spin like a normal oscillating yeah. Doppler radar. Ours is uh, phased array and directional. So um, there will never be a way to uh, effectively stop that 100%. 
but if you have a good layered air defense, um, you will be good. Um, you will be taken care of. So I, let's say, let's put a hypothetical out there that um, you start emitting radiation and you're like, hey, I just want to kind of keep an eye on this. All of a sudden they detect that radiation. And let's say they don't get smoke bias. They detect it. They, they peel off. They're like, hey, we know where they're at. Go ahead and call for fire. They send artillery. LPWS is going to start taking out that artillery. We're then in turn going to detect where that artillery came from and counter fires are, are happening. Right. Um, so we would pass that information to the FA guys. They would start counter firing, take out that battery, or uh, the Air Force would be sent out to go handle that issue accordingly. Um, it really depends on the range and, and really the theater uh, that you're operating in, rules of engagement, all those things. Um, so I guess, yeah, the short answer would be, there's no way to stop it hundred uh, percent. And I can't get into the, the gritty details of like the cool things that our radars can do to try and yeah. disguise themselves. So we'll just leave it at that. Yeah, right. No, so, so like, let, let me talk that back to you uh, through, through the, through the Brandon filter. The, like, what I hear you saying is, is that like the moment that you, that you admit you're, you're, you're susceptible to detection and you can't avoid that. The only mm -hmm. way that you can really contend with it is by having a network system of like counteractions so that way even if they do shoot at you it's that's fascinating we just killed them so like you know we'll take care of from there yeah that's the theory so we have one of the new systems coming online i've uh, shared a couple of articles about it called ibcs it's the integrated air missile defense battle command system i had the privilege of being the first soldier in history to fire off of it uh, it was probably the highlight of my career. I got to meet the vice chief of staff and I forgot the word hostile when I was talking to him. So <laughs> well, that okay. was an interesting, yeah, I was just, I froze and I was like, uh, my chief was like hostile. I said, hostile. Yep. Uh, yeah, that's what I was, yeah, totally <laughs> right. froze. Um, but uh, so what it would be is the amount of sensors that we bring into the fight is, is really is why it's not as much of a worry as people think. So the F-35, really powerful phased array uh, uh, mm -hmm. radar on the F-35, crazy powerful, like one of the best airborne sensors in the world. Doesn't matter who you you know or talk to. Then we also have things like AWACS. We have radars off of uh, drones. We have, uh, you know, Sentinels employed. We have Tippy-2s employed, which Tippy-2 is the THAAD radar. And that thing, it can see to... It can see Jesus. It can see forever. I mean, that thing is way out there. And then you have Aegis or Aegis Ashore. Uh, those things can also see forever. You have satellite radar. Like there's so many sensors. And so that also helps us combat potential jamming, which is a lot of, you know, you know one of the questions that I get, well, what if I jam that signal? Okay. So Patriot is a band of, of radiation that falls within this band. So you jam that signal. Well, now you have one, two, three, four, five, like six other bands of signal that know exactly where you're at and are watching you the entire time. So like previously where you would jam one sensor, we couldn't get missile guidance to you because we didn't know where you were. But now with all of these sensors talking to each other, I can send the missile out there and that radar that's off to your side can say, hey, I have the best picture of this jammer. Go there. And the missile will be like, thanks, homie, and just guide itself on in. That's awesome. So that's uh, actually pretty cool. And it also, you know, every time you go into like some uh, some office somewhere, there's like a, this niche army uh magazine there and you flip it open and it's like introducing the new acronym blah 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 and there's all these little letters oh, yeah. and stuff like that you just made sense of all of that so, so <laughs> my entire career i've always like who reads this like who are they advertising to uh so, yeah uh, okay so uh another kind of question that, that you kind of uh, brought up on is that one that we've kind of been having internally um in terms of like uh, artificial intelligence and like what does that mean for us? And we haven't been able to find a person that really can uh, you know, speak to it. Uh, not saying that, that you're that person. But if you know something, then I'm all, all for it. Um, but 
the the question became we discovered that like you can talk to chat gpt and he'll write, write a five paragraph op order for you so i was yep. like it's like it's like hooray we don't have to do that anymore but then there just became this debate it's like well if we if we do that all the time that our people will get lazy and, and rusty and they won't know how, how to do it so so we're like okay well but at the same time we had stanley mccrystal on the uh podcast and he's talking about back in the 1980s he bought like a 4800 uh computer to put in his track vehicle so he basically could do the same thing he didn't have to type out orders or anything he could just like program it and it would just spit one out so it's like well like you look at like the the accomplishments of that guy, and this was his, his kind of approach to it. I only can only believe that if he was sitting in my chair, he'd be like, "Oh, well, use ChatGPT. Why well, plug all that out?" Um, and so, like, there was like this kind of tension of just like, "Well, what? Like, what? What is the right answer?" And you kind of already answered it because, like, you're talking about how um, the the UAE shoot down like all these these other, these mistakes that were people made mistakes with these extremely advanced machines and that the human mm -hmm. factor still actually matters so do you have an opinion on on that so uh a, a little while while i was on certain projects uh because i spent before i got here uh to be an instructor uh teaching slc senior leader course I'm, i don't know if you're familiar yep. um i was uh i spent four years testing and designing new systems and ai integration was a conversation that was had um, now, while we believe that programming will continue to get better, uh, we put this when, how do I word this? We put the situation, the, the system in certain ambiguous situations where a human would have made a different decision and we watched it play God and do things that a human wouldn't do based on moral reasons. Cause you can't program morality, right? right? So we came to the conclusion that it's going to be, there will be some level of automation, but it will always have operator oversight. Right. Uh, even Patriot has had uh, automation to a degree. So we do have an auto engage switch indicator. Like you put the system in auto. Now, what that means is based on a plethora of other variables. You know, it has to meet this criteria, this criteria, all of these things. And then it'll be classified as this. And it also has to be this close to you coming directly at you. And the system will be like, all right, I'm going to automatically engage this if you want me to. And that automation, so the automation side of it happens to be where the engineers plug in all the ones and zeros and they know, okay, if I fire this missile off of this launcher at this time, I have the highest probability of killing this target. That's the part that we're okay with being automated. The system saying, I want this to die is not the level of automation that we have become comfortable with. So Right, right. So like, are you saying that um, it's a comfort thing? It's like, like we are like making the decision to withhold that decision uh, from the machine or the machine's not capable of making that decision? Uh, we made sure that the, the machines are not capable of making those kind of decisions uh, going forward, at least until we can, somebody can prove us that it, that it can make morally based decisions instead of logically based. Cause there's a difference, you know, moral, logical, there's a, there's a big difference in those, especially. Right. 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 Yeah. Um, you, like you basically, you're programming utilitarian ethics. Like if I kill this person, we save 10 more. So why not kill that person? It's like, well, exactly. It's more complicated than that. Yeah, no, that's a, that's interesting. Like, uh, just kind of added to the discussion, like you, you look, we can't even uh, agree on a good theory of morality. Like what is moral? Well, it's like, it just depends on uh, all, all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. uh, and you have military sociologists that are constantly uh, debating that and, and theologians and philosophers that are constantly like going on and on about it. So I don't think that uh, a computer anytime soon is gonna, gonna crack that nut if we well, haven't done it yet. So think about it like this. Have you ever heard of the Dal and Cal? I don't think so. 
Okay, so the CAL is the critical asset list. Um, it is based off of four categories, CVRT, which is the CVRT assessment, which stands for criticality, vulnerability, recuperability, and threat. Okay. So every single asset we have all over the world is, is racked and stacked based off of CVRT. The CVRT assessment puts it on the critical asset list, the CAL, and this is listed one through however. The defended asset list is, this is how much assets we have to protect our forces with. What is priority one? What is priority two? Priority three, priority four, right? So to us, I understand that priority five, in my brain, I'm going to do everything I can to keep priority five alive while keeping priority one alive. But to a machine, it may go, okay, well, that's priority five. I need to save my resources for priority one, which isn't even being attacked at this point in time. So I'm not going to save priority five. So think about it like that. <laughs> wow, yeah, that, that, that would be, yeah, that's a complicated problem set there for, uh, for a machine. Like you, and I don't know that we're anywhere close to, to programming anything that can um, see in color that way. They can kind of take all of the, these, these things in and make those types, types of decisions. That's yep. pr pretty interesting. Um, so uh, we are rolling up on, on an hour, and I, I don't want to eat uh, too much of your, your Saturday up. Um, Tell me, like, uh, like I, I do want to get to the hypersonics, though, because, like, I did see that, that video, and it was pretty cool that, that the way that you broke it down. And, like, you gave me something to think about that I had never thought in, in my brain, because I was always like, well, hypersonics, like, that's that's something to, to be kind of somewhat worried about because they do go so fast. But then you were like, well, we shot down a satellite. And I was like, oh, yeah, those are, like, going way fast. <laughs> yeah. Way, way faster. So I was just like, yeah, like it, it, it was, I wouldn't say it's life changing, but it really kind of changed my whole perspective on it because I never had classified satellite and missile in like the same bucket in my brain. I was like, oh, it's the yeah. same thing. So yeah, yeah so we've done it twice. Yeah. Um, so, so hypersonics, uh, the, I, I want to, I guess what I always try and do is debunk like what a hypersonic is. First off, hypersonics are not new. The first time the United States went hypersonic was in 1947 with the V-2 missile program. Uh, a hypersonic is any object that travels over one mile a second or 1.6 kilometers a second. And in one of my videos, I said that it's not five times the speed of sound because the speed of sound is different at sea level versus 50,000 feet up versus in a vacuum, right? Uh, right? It doesn't really move in a vacuum, but neither here nor there. Um, now, while these objects are moving incredibly fast, people saying that we can't intercept them is intentionally misleading. In 1991, while Patriot wasn't designed for missiles, it was designed for aircraft, they did intercept a couple of them. And these are objects that were moving past that threshold. Um, Scud Bravos that we intercepted in 2003 were moving at one point, if you look on Wikipedia, Wikipedia says this, 1.7 kilometers a second is the max velocity of a Scud Bravo, which is by definition, hypersonic. Right. Um, and the United States knocked out nine out of 12 of those. The only reason they didn't knock out the other three is they were so when you program your system, it says, I'm going to protect this. If something is about to land outside of this, the system goes, that's cool, whatever. I don't care about it. So no, that's no. why they didn't intercept three. Right. Um, it decided not to. So um, the United States, so hypersonic, a hypersonic missile uh, is not a category of missile. People say, well, Russian hypersonics. No, that's like saying I have a fast car and everyone going saying, hey, he's got a fast car. Well, what kind of car? Well, it's a fast car. No, that's... It's not how that works. It's an attribute um, of the car. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So you have ballistic missiles, which get shot way up, and they uh, you know, kind of glide themselves back in because they've run out of fuel. They use a conventional rocket. Those ones are easily defeatable, easily detectable. I mean, um, we have hit those for a long time. Russian uh, scuds. I mean, 
Uh, I think the no dong falls into that category. I'm not sure off the top of my head. I'd have to go into Wikipedia uh, to check out. There's a lot of different missiles out there made by a lot of different countries that do fall into that category. And the U.S. is capable of intercepting these things because of those early detections that we have, right? right. So like I said in the video, Patriot has a detectable range on paper right. of 100 miles, which is 160 kilometers. So if you have an object traveling at two kilometers a second, that's 80 seconds from detection to impact. I have time to, to work on that. Right. Um, if we have a proper sensor network, as that thing's climbing from its launch point, we're going to know it's there. So we have even more time. Um, proper sensor network, you know, all these sensors talking to each other, early detection is going to be a huge, huge uh, benefit. Um, now, hypersonic cruise missiles. I'll be honest with you, I'm not really convinced they exist. Um, and this is why. There's so, there's so much physics associated with it that the range that they are capable of reaching isn't as threatening as people think. Okay, so you need a lot of fuel to move an object that fast. Right. Now, when you move that object outside the atmosphere, there's no wind resistance, there's no drag. So yeah, you can pick up those speeds quite easily. That's, that's not hard to do. Staying low, especially around sea level and moving at those speeds, you have to get incredibly close or you gotta have an enormous missile with a ton of fuel to be able to meet that. Right. So. If they're carrying it on an airplane, they have to get very, very close. And getting close to American assets in general with an aircraft is is probably just not a good idea. Um, yeah. I wouldn't recommend it. Right. Um, <laughs> so there's one problem. Now let's say it's let's say it's ground launch and it's a ground launch cruise missile, which is not unheard of. The U.S. has like the VLS, which we use the vertical launch system on the Aegis, and I mean we have those built into the ground. Not unheard of. Granted, our missiles move a lot slower, as do cruise missiles in general. They move around 500 miles an hour. If you oh, check I didn't Wikipedia, know that, yeah, it's kind of slow. Uh, in yeah, my opinion, they were like a lot faster than that. But yeah. Well, so the way like the American Tomahawk cruise missile, if you look again, I'm I just quote Wikipedia publicly. That's all I ever do. <laughs> right. um, the uh, American Tomahawk travels at around five to six hundred miles an hour until it goes uh, terminal. Its terminal phase is where it starts rapidly accelerating towards the target. It can get up to Mach two if okay. you check Wikipedia. Right. So. That's to conserve its fuel so it can go longer distance because it kind of glides. Um, cruise missiles in general have lateral surfaces which produce lift so they can glide on the air. So having one that is just screaming at you is going to take an excessive amount of fuel. It's going to cook that object and your range is not going to be as much as you think because uh, I think I did talk about this one as well. The American Sprint missile, which was capable of doing Mach 10 in 1965, it did Mach 10 in 10 seconds. It gets a layer of plasma and it cooks the object to around 6200 degrees i don't care how powerful or robust of material you use that is a finite amount of resource when you have that level of heat on an object right so i personally have not seen anything flying that low and that fast for extended periods of time do they have them maybe but the range is is kind of negligible because you can't produce that amount of thrust uh, right. for extended periods of time. And you can't put that kind of punishment on, on an object for extended periods of time. So if we had just one standalone sensor, that is terrifying. That is absolutely terrifying because the horizon is around 20 miles. So if they fly enough of the earth, they can release that thing at 20 miles. Scary, super scary. But the U.S. doesn't employ any single sensor anywhere in the world. We have a myriad of sensors, airborne, ground sensors, satellite sensors. As of 2022, uh, the United States military said that they're creating a satellite network to track hypersonic cruise missiles or hypersonic missiles in general. Uh, Lockheed Martin, I think, is, is running that project and maybe Northrop. I'm not sure. Um, so while these things are scary to an individual sensor, like let's say, oh, let's make up make up one like the S-400. Um, 
while it is scary to an individual vehicle sensor or or just someone working in a vacuum, if you have a proper network, it becomes a whole lot less scary. Right. So, right. so what's the that, yeah, no, that makes sense. That makes sense. Like all of it, especially I never had thought through the uh, the fuel problem of it, but you're you're right. It's just like in order to to launch a you know a, a hypersonic from a far off city to hit like Washington D.C. That's a lot of gas, man. That's a lot of gas just to get it going that fast, much less keeping yeah. it going that fast. Um, so uh, and then you have like all the, all the the thermal problems with it and everything else that's like that. Yeah. So um, what like what's the gain in in uh, some of our adversaries advertising? Like, hey, look, we have this thing. Is it like it, like what do they what do they win? Um, there really isn't anything. So here, here's the thing: if they knew they could get through American air and missile defense, nothing would be stopping them. Yeah. If they knew, and that's I'm being completely transparent. So for example, Russian politics they never de-escalate anything. They've never in their history have ever de-escalated anything. That's why they, they collapsed during the Cold Wars because they continued to escalate with the West. And then eventually they collapsed because they couldn't support it anymore. Right. <laughs> so uh, they think it's their, you know, they're beating their chest. They're, we got this, we got this, we got this. Now the United States is capable of designing these things. I wouldn't be surprised. Like we were talking about um, possibly hypersonics being fired from the high Mars just for the reason of we might want to do it. Why not? Let's have it. Um, the U.S. historically has used saturation to beat enemy air defenses and beat enemy uh, ground defenses as much as they possibly can. So it's really um, what they think versus what they know. They think hypersonics can get through. They're not really feeling brave enough to try yeah. uh, because what they know is the last person who tried throwing missiles at the United States was Saddam Hussein and we shut him down like he was laying on a cable bill. Right. Um, so uh, I, again, air missile defense is not a lot of the privilege of failure. And I tell my soldiers this all the time. If something gets through, it doesn't matter if it's one or a hundred, if you live, if you die, if something gets through, we have taught the whole world we can be beaten. And it yep. just became a whole lot more dangerous to be American. Yeah, no, no matter what that uh, that missile impacts on, the information itself is far more deadly than anything else. Exactly. And especially, let's say that that is a Russian-produced missile from like the 1970s. Everybody who hates us is going to want to buy that from them. Yep. <laughs> yep. So, um, yes. uh, go ahead. Oh, uh, it's so that's that's ultimately what hypersonics boil down to. The U.S. has experimented with hypersonics. Like, I mean, this, the the Minuteman is technically hypersonic. It's Mach twenty three. No, twenty. Yeah, twenty three capable. Uh, the Trident two is Mach twenty four capable. Uh, these are both in current service in the United States. Um, but we don't call them hypersonics. We just call them missiles, missiles. because. Yeah, it being hypersonic really doesn't mean anything. Uh, yeah, like we know the, that. The labeling it doesn't get us anything. It's like we, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is, this is what it is. Okay, so um, but before I get off, get off with you, like, uh, I'd like to get your opinion on like social media. We've had several social media influencers on and uh, and and talk to them, and uh, just like, why did you start? What value do you see in it? And then how can we better use it going forward to uh, to have productive conversations like this? Uh, so I'll say that I started, I kind of gave you my origin story a little bit already. Yeah, right. Um, and I enjoy reaching out to people. It's also a good networking thing. Um, there's people who work for some of the big fortune 500 companies out there who can see that I, like you did, mm -hmm. uh, I'm, I'm not uneducated in, in these things that are missiles. Uh, I, I enjoy what I do and I'm passionate about it. So when I retire, maybe somebody recognizes my resume and goes, holy cow, this is yeah, this right. guy. Right. Um, so, uh, the benefit is um, and I think 
Dirty Bird Fitness before he stopped making uh, content kind of hit the nail on the head. It's it's humanizing your position. You know, I remember when I was a private and I'd see that sergeant first class and I'm like, he is he is so untouchable, so just beyond my level of understanding. And I aim to fix that. Like I, you know, I put on my pants same as any soldier out there. I may make different decisions based on previous experiences. But I believe it, it humanizes your position a whole lot more uh, through social media. You become less of a nameless rank who barks at people and more of a person. Um, and it also bridges into the civilian factor. People have a lot of questions about the military. And if I can answer those based off of my experience of what I do, uh, I can help the recruiting. Um, I can give people the information that they ask for, and maybe they're on the fence and their parents, they want to talk to their parents, be like, hey, check this guy out. Look at, look at what he's talking about. What do you think about this for me? And, you know, parents obviously want their kids to be safe naturally. Uh, this is an unsafe profession in some aspects, but I, I love what I do, and I would love for other people to experience it and, and people who are interested in the field to come to my field and, and maybe learn something so I can make them better than I was. Right. Uh, so, but the last thing that I will say is the benefit of social media overall is right now the United States Army in general has a terrible public affairs. And it's not, it's not our PAOs doing anything wrong. It's just we have a public affairs problem. I, I asked all my soldiers uh, when they're in my class, when's the last time you Googled US Army? Because the first thing you see is US Army recruiting page. And then the next thing you see is US Army buys, US Army buys, US Army buys, all of our projects, which I think is cool, cool. But if you get to page two or three of Google, you start seeing things like Vanessa Guillen, leaders, motorboating subordinates. You start seeing all these terrible, terrible things that have happened in our formation. And while I absolutely agree, we need to shout it from the rooftops that these things happen and we are going to make these changes. Our soldiers are doing a lot of good things that just they're hidden. They're hidden on some random Facebook page and they're not getting the word out there. When we have like every cycle that my students come through, they do a volunteer project. And I, I shout their names from the mountaintops. Like my guys are doing great things out here. Look at this. We, we cleaned the VFW. We, we poured some concrete. We uh, went and took shelter dogs out for a walk. Like we do these things because we care about the community around us. So I think that bridging the gap between social media and uh, if leaders keep putting ourselves out there and, and talking through these things and, um, it also cuts out the middleman. I'm sorry. I said that last thing was my last thing, but, uh, you know how the telephone game is in the army, right? You put out an order or something and say, Hey, uh, unless it's below 50 degrees, you can't wear beanies. And by the time that gets down to Joe, the team leader saying, Hey, the commander said no beanies. Yeah. Right. No. Yeah. That's, that's not what I said. So Sergeant major, the army has a Twitter. He has yeah. it on purpose so that you can't, yeah. So that you can't translate, you know, through the telephone game. Hey, Sergeant major, the army said, uh, uh you can't do that. Because Joe can just go, hold on. No, Sergeant Major of the Army said right here that this is how this works. Uh, so it cuts out a lot of that middleman because I, I hate how that, you know, Sergeant Major goes, hey, I'm going to come down to your AO on Wednesday. And by the time he gets down to soldier, he's like, hey, Sergeant Major said the barracks is jacked up. You need to go clean it right now. I'm like, no. Yep. Yep. No, I'll tell you, like, as a chaplain, I, I live in that sphere of like, I'm the one guy, the one person that will talk to a battalion commander, brigade staff, whatever else, and then also talk to, to an E1 in the same day and do it day in, day out. And you can see that whole interplay get back and forth. And to the point where we were doing the surveys, trying to figure out, like, where is the breakdown? Like, what is happening? Because, like, I mean, I, I can sit there and listen to, like, you know, battalion commander go to company commander and be like, okay, yeah, everyone seems to be on the same page. But by the time I get to like, you know, team leader to, to E1, it's like morphed. And it's just like, what, what happened, you know? And uh, yep. so, yeah, social media, we use that uh, in, our, in Poland to try to talk to, try to, to talk to families by simply just having a roundtable discussion. Be like, hey, look, if you have questions about your soldier, 
or what's going on, just you can ask. We have a guy that's moderating, so that way it's, you know, you're the we're not getting into some kind of weird, you know, conversation or whatever, but we'll answer anything that you want. And the families really, really, really appreciated that because their soldiers do they do the same thing. Like, you know, like their squad leader tells them this, they tell their Joe's that, and they do the same thing with their families, where like the, the messaging is completely you know screwed up for them too. And so it helps. Yeah being kind of a connector and a correcting item as well. So yeah. It also holds leaders accountable at all levels. Like I can't say something and then not live it because people will call me out immediately. They'll (laughs) grab that phone and be like, Hey, hold on. Sorry. You said like, yeah, yeah. right, 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 right. hundred (laughs) percent. Well, man, thanks so much for being on. It's like super, super, uh, uh, love having you on. It's like really enjoyable to kind of hear, uh, like no one talks about ADA, like, like, no, like y- y'all are like this, like weird microcasm that's out there that, uh, that we don't ever get to talk to. We, uh, we, ADA is, uh, we, we refer to ourselves as another damn army. Uh, we're just completely <laughs> off on our own, doing our own thing. <laughs> yeah, man. Like that, that, I don't, and I don't know why that, that is, especially with like, I mean, like I just did the career course last year or so, and they were like, SEMA, SEMA, SEMA. And I'm just like, okay, that makes sense. And I was like, well, like, how does like ADA factor into this? And they're like, I don't know. Like, <laughs> and then that's it. Like, y'all just, you know, <laughs> not, not a We're in this weird, ambiguous situation where like ADA loves ADA and the COCOM commanders love ADA because when they do that yeah. draw, they can be like, oh, hey, we're protected from missiles because Patriot's here. And yeah. they don't really know what we do. Right. So, right. Yeah. Well, social media definitely helps advertise what you guys can do. And then you can shoot down uh, drones or uh, or as uh, classified hypersonic uh, missiles. No problem. Yep. There you go. Well, man, thanks so much for being on. I'll uh, let you know whenever it drops. Oh, thank you, sir. I appreciate being here. Absolutely. This has been the Raven Report Podcast, the official podcast of the 81st Striker Brigade Combat Team. If you're interested in seeing if you have what it takes to join our team, go to our Instagram and click the link in the bio. Click the join link and connect with us.